Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How you doing? I'm not bad. How are you? I'm all right, you know, surviving, ticking along. Yep, yep. Trying not to despair at the world and everything in it. (laughs) It's getting harder and harder. I did make the mistake of looking at the current uh, candidates for president of the uh, United States and they all suck. There's just not a single good option there yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's fun. We have elections here in Northern Ireland next month for the council. And so they get signs up here mm-hmm. it's with all their faces on all of the lampposts. So I just have loads of, I live in a very loyalist area. So I have lots of like horrible bigots on lampposts staring at me all the time. It's very disconcerting. <laughs> I mean, that's all that we have at all going on. And uh, <laughs> those are all our bigots options. on lampposts. <laughs> <laughs> in the UK. Yeah, rainy fascism island. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that kind of thing that fascists like. We're here to talk about the other thing that fascists <laughs> like, which is Viking circuits. Ladies and gentlemen, what an incredible segue. Uh, we are. Yes. Yeah. Hurrah. Did you see that? That was seamless. That was the most beautiful segue in podcast history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I should have a CV, I would put that on it. Anyway, but yeah. <laughs> This is part two of What's Still with Vikings, where we're going to be talking about Norse sagas and Norse religion and mythology. This is basically the second part of pretty sure Luca Blumenthal's question, which was, what is the history of Norse mythology? What about the Edda saga? And what are sagas? Mm. So we're going to do those questions in reverse. What's a saga? What's the Edda? And what do we know about Norse mythology? (laughs) (laughs) Because that makes more sense. And this is separated out into a second one, one, because it's quite a lot. And two, because it's not really Vikings. It's pretending to be about Vikings, but it's basically historical fiction about Vikings written in the past. It also feels to me, just from reading a little bit of the sagas, I didn't make it through much because... The, I found them deeply boring uh, and like <laughs> they, they didn't stick in my brain. But um, yeah. what it feels like is an effort to link mythological past to a real present like it's, it's a building a genealogy over time like a, a saga will say this is the saga of like I read Eagle's saga or Eagle's saga yeah. and it's just like here is a whole family history and we start with a great grandfather who was linked to this person who was descended from the giants and then it goes through over time till we get to people who feel more like real people who could have existed in the world so that's what they feel like to me is an attempt to connect the pe- the current people in the present, by which I mean like twelve the year twelve hundred or whenever these were written, yeah, uh, with our mythological heritage. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. That's yeah. the a large part of their purpose, which is that they are. So for sources for this, the main things I read were the books by Heather O'Donoghue, who seemed like she was a good expert who didn't have any kind of like particularly deranged opinions um because <laughs> there was a lot of like if you search for like norse mythology and stuff then it, you'd really do have to wade through like neo-pagans and neo-nazis <laughs> even in like act so allegedly academic stuff but- which i actually find really fascinating that that's where like i mean it's not i think any nationalist like insanity will grasp onto anything from the past and use it to justify their fascist nationalism it's not hard to do wherever you're from you can find something but like i find it interesting how much this is pinned to racism because european racism especially like since so much of it's pinned to colonialism is about claiming that we are civilized and that we are here <laughs> to civilize the savages right like that's the that's the racist colonialist narrative and the this is all about a savage european history like these are brutal <laughs> brutal stories about men who just like turn up and they're always like are we going to be best friends or are we going to fight to the death immediately there's a moment <laughs> in one of them in eagle saga where he's like he turns up at a farm and him and his men are taken prisoner and then they escape and rob the farm while everyone is asleep and then he gets to his boat and he's like no this is shameful this is a really bad thing I've done because I just stole this guy's crap without him even knowing so he goes back and locks everyone in in the house and lights it on fire <laughs> so that it's not a shameful episode in his life like oh, that's much better yeah problem solved <laughs> yeah now I can die happy it's, they were the- gonna have to live without all of their stuff but now 
that problem yeah. is resolved because they're no longer alive. <laughs> yeah. If anything, these stories prove that we have all we all have savage pasts, and that we are <laughs> deeply hypocritical when we pretend that Europe is a civilized continent. <laughs> the, uh, Hello, Donny, is actually very good on this because she has a whole book about the reception of um, all of the sagas and basically about the create how the viking from these sagas goes from being a a kind of savage beast that we have moved away from which is what they are when christians of like the medieval period are writing about them to like this romantic hero who's not afraid of death um, Mm -hmm. basically in the victorian period and then also through and this takes us right back to many years ago when we first started doing this the creation of the aryan race and the madame blatavsky and all of that stuff with the germ with German nationalism and the creation of a kind of idealised German past that mm. meant that Nazis thought that they were literally could go into Russia without jumpers because they were physically <laughs> they were the Because they were the, exactly. <laughs> so she's very good at that. It's called Old, Nor- Old Norse Icelandic Literature, a short introduction. And it is a short introduction. But, okay, so what is a saga? Sagas are written, all of them, in a very short period of time, in a kind of 150 to 200 year period between the 12th and the 15th century. Most of them are written in the 12th and 13th century. And they are mostly looking back at settlement and Commonwealth period of Iceland, which is the 850 to 1050. And they are all from Iceland. They are a really specific Icelandic form of literature from this really specific period and no one that I could see really seems to make a huge deal about this but the other thing actually I'm going to shout out to is Saga Thing podcast (laughs) whose beginning episodes were super helpful for contextualizing all of this But Saga Thing has been going on for like 10 years now and they are in the Rex Factor Rex Factor Cinematic Universe yeah Yeah. Pantheon Where they are basically putting sagas on trial, so they read like read them, discuss them, and then judge them on various criteria. But they are highly recommended if you would like to know more about sagas. But basically, the period at which they're being written is mostly in the period after Iceland lost its independence. So Iceland gave up its independence to Norway and then became part of the Danish Empire. And then they started writing all of this stuff. Basically. Which is all about how... All- all the men who were driven out of Norway because they couldn't get on with the king. They yeah. ended up founding Iceland. Yeah. And so you get this huge literary culture which emerges out of basically having slightly less to do. <laughs> <laughs> there is this, there's all these theories, like people being like, why did the Icelanders write so much? Because they, in this kind of 200 year period, they write huge amounts of different things including like six or seven different types of sagas and all these legal texts and these kind of imaginary genealogies and eddas and uh, just huge amounts of literature being produced. And the best argument that one person, our friend Saxo Grammaticus came up with was that there's just nothing to do in Iceland when it's dark. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It was like, it's really dark or uh, you get very long nights. So they just sat indoors and wrote. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Which is as good an answer as any. But so one of the genres is sagas, and then there's six subgenres of saga. So the most famous are the family sagas, which are the ones that you're talking about, which are all set during the settlement period of like, I fell out with the king of Norway, so I have moved to Iceland, and now we are trying to survive and we're trying to create our society in Iceland because Iceland doesn't have a king and we're kind of we're trying to also accrue wealth and acclaim to yeah better solidify our stake on our own lives essentially yeah and kind of struggle within Iceland and also giving prestige to the thing so that's the family sagas and there's about 40 odd of those then there's the king sagas which are all about scandinavian kings and royal families and often like big old genealogies but with like stories of kings and they are mostly kind of they start with mythological and then we'll go up to like the conversion era which is when iceland converted to christianity in the year 1000 
which I like to think they chose. <laughs> it's very tidy. It's so tidy that I had to read it a few times in a few different books until I realised that people weren't just saying, oh, like about 1,000. They were like, yeah, 1,000. <laughs> then there's contemporary targas, which are also called same time sagas, which I like. That's very nice. are written in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, about the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, which is like that guy over there is having beef with that guy over there. <laughs> and our novels basically written about people that they know. <laughs> friend, friend fiction, just like friend on Bob's Burgers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then legendary sagas, which are all about pre-Icelandic Scandinavia. So like before they find Iceland and people start colonising it, they're all set in or mostly set outside of Iceland. And then these are all kind of contain lots of fairies and elves and dragons and mm -hmm. things like that. And there are also versions of Robin Hood there. There's versions of Beowulf there. There's versions of all kinds of kind of medieval stories that are moving all the way around the European world. These ones are the ones that some often cause the most trouble because they're obviously fictional because they've got dragons and Valkyries in. Mm -hmm. But then they also will have really accurate genealogies. <laughs> I mean, that's also the Bible, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Bible exactly. has lots of magic uh, in it and then it has a really precise genealogy from like uh, Abraham to Jesus. Yeah, or it'll have like some kind of really specific detail that is definitely true. And you're like, mm, if only this wasn't in the context of a dragon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe they just did used to be magic. You know, what do we know? We know, you know no, We know I mean, so can't, little. Can't really prove that there wasn't. We can't prove that there wasn't. Uh, and then lastly, there are the chivalric sagas or the heroic sagas, which are kind of romances, like Arthurian romances, like chivalric lads moving <laughs> around. They're sometimes also called the lying sagas, which is fun. It's because very it fun. Implies chivalry that the rest is a of them lie. Are. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, the other one is bishop and saint sagas, <laughs> which is biographical stories about bishops. That sounds like the most boring kind of saga out I there. I think it is. I think it might be the one. That, because the um, saga thing boys were like, boys, the thing adult men were like, um, it's, they're not, where, unlike in the rest of Europe, they'll be hagiographical, so they'll quite often have miracles and stuff, whereas these <laughs> ones are just like very, fairly biographical. <laughs> sure, yeah. And therefore much less, much less fun than the other ones, which are, do you tend to have like Valkyries and, and fun things like that in it. Yeah. And romance and tales of heroism and people with big swords fighting other people with big swords and people setting fire to things. Yeah, people transforming into bears and killing, yeah. a, killing a bunch fun. of guys. Yeah. Yeah, or witches doing curses. Was yeah. one that was like, oh yeah, witches. And it's like perfectly normal stuff happening all over the show and then all of a sudden a witch comes out and does a curse. And the, the curse is that the main character will be unsatisfied in bed forever. <laughs> and the way that she does this is that she, instead of making his penis like very small, she makes his penis grotesquely large. <laughs> so he can't have sex with his wife. <laughs> because his poor, his poor wife with her normal sized vagina just yeah. can't deal with his giant, giant penis. But everybody thinks he's impotent because. Oh, that is such a beautiful <laughs> retconning of your own, like, being shitty. It, it kind of is like what Shakespeare is doing with Macbeth, right? When he tells the story of how we get to rob the, the Bruce from Banquo. Yeah. And, and like, that's the, that's the story of Macbeth. Macbeth is like. There was this one guy, but he was cursed. And that's why the Scottish <laughs> royal line doesn't come from him. It comes from his yeah, friend. Because of the curse. Because of the curse. And, uh, that's, and that's why, why I we haven't had sex with that, that the, the royal line is correct because it has this history that I'm making up and pretending that witch is predicted. Like, that's yeah. what the sagas are doing with this guy's penis. Yeah. yeah. So there's that. But for a long time, despite all of the curses and dragons and, and things, a lot of the sagas were taken as a literal truth about the past, about the <laughs> Icelandic past. And a, like the kind of base thought process up until about the 20th century was that the sagas, all of them are written down versions of an oral tradition, a much more ancient oral tradition, <laughs> and that they therefore... 
accurately or fairly accurately preserved real stories about real people in settlement period Iceland. Yeah. Then in the 1940s, somebody was like, you know what, lads? This is very literary. (laughs) (laughs) Like in terms of like the complexity and like the way that they all have kind of this very kind of careful literary rules and structures and the way that they work it suggests to me that they might actually just have been written like <laughs> they might have begun and ended life as as stories created in the 13th century and then there was this massive argument and i love this because i love a historiographical argument mm-hmm. and all of the things i read were like gave the two sides titles which i don't think happens enough <laughs> So there's the free prose, like the sharks and the jets of history, exactly, of yes. like Icelandic saga history. So <laughs> there's the free prosists mm-hmm. who believe that they are it's an oral tradition and that these all began as stories told around the fire in the mm-hmm. like ninth century, and that the written form is their is like their final form, a way of preserving it for a literate culture, right. And they like to point to things that they call, disgustingly, oral residue. (laughs) Oh, that's horrible. Isn't it vile? Yeah. (laughs) It makes me feel uncomfortable. It's very, Uh, very unpleasant. (laughs) So they, yeah, so they talk about oral residue in the surviving texts. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, then on the other side are the book prosists who are like more because they don't say disgusting things. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Who basically say that they're like so literary and they are so they have such a clear kind of written structure that they must have been created. So it's not a, a like a writing down something that already exists, but it is a creation imagining a history. <laughs> And there are problems with both. And I don't think that now in the 21st century, anybody would fall onto either side of that so hard because what they've kind of come down on is, okay, they are probably based on something that was in the ether. Like they're very, the society and the culture that all 40 odd of the sagas, the family sagas, for example, depict is very similar across all of them. Mm. Like there are really strong consistencies in terms of how the world that is being described is described and so it's probable that they are taking something that already exists in the culture but they are a history for Icelanders that and then they are writing it down for people of their own time using specific literary and like kind of shaping them into specific literary tropes so it's a combination of the two basically and like the closest thing that you can uh, kind of align them to today is historical novels and yeah. I always think a way that I try to make sense of this for myself is to say like okay so if you had if somehow all history about Henry VIII was lost but yeah. for some reason the series some, The Tudors remained yeah or like you get the series The Tudors you've got Wolf Hall and yeah. you've got Philippa Gregory uh, Philippa Gregory and an Alison Weir novel So you've only really got fiction written about it, but they're all kind of fiction, which is trying to depict a kind of authentic time. And they're all going to tell you, they're all going to look really similar. Like, so you're going to get the idea there was this court, there was this guy in the middle who's a bit of a loon. You've got, he's all of these women. You're going to get kind of a broadly consistent view. You've got these, like, these heads of households who are all sinister and like doing machinations to, to gain power. Yeah, there's a pattern to follow. Exactly. So you're going to get an image and you can probably say like, okay, this is like, they're all very different and we're definitely like not true, but they are describing something which did exist once upon a time, but describing it for an audience that is not the people of the Tudor court. Yeah. So that's basically what they're doing. And that seems to... I think that's the, the obvious thing that somehow often gets left out is like, trying to think about who the intended audience was for any one thing. It's kind of, it reminds me of when you talk about Boudicca, for example, like yeah. the, the conception of her as a real person comes from reading that account, believing that it was being written for people who would assume it was factual, when in fact it was being written for people who would assume it was allegorical. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it probably these people like it's being written for the descendants of these people. And it it seems to be being written to specifically create Icelandicness. Mm. Uh in you know, in an Iceland that is no longer independent, that is but which is like intimately connected to Norway and which is has its really specific version of Christianity as well. Mm. Got vaguely distracted by reading stuff about the Icelandic church. Uh And, like, the Icelandic church sort of refused to get involved with everybody else. Uh, Like, the language of the Icelandic church is always Icelandic. Mm -hmm. Like, they never want to engage with the rest of the world, whereas they do in other forms of literature. So one of the fun things about reading these sagas is that you see Attila the Hun is in a couple mm-hmm. and in I think it might be Egglesaga actually it goes off and fights with Athelstan yeah and it's in it has this like this heroic role in Athelstan's war to bring England all together yeah and- it's, it's responsible basically it, just the sole person responsible for defeating um, I think it was Olaf who was I'm fighting go, with yeah. the Scots at that point and like yeah he he on his lonesome because they'd killed his brother won that yeah. war basically <laughs> just one man by himself yeah. yeah and brian baru as well who is an irish king and then you have all these arthurian legends that are in there about like they're lit literarily wise they are very involved in the rest of europe in mm. northern europe like these stories are going backwards and forwards and it's not like an isolated culture of just telling stories about themselves but they are stories going backwards and forwards yeah tristan and as older is another one which is really big but with the church they're just like no we're not interested please go away <laughs> and like when the reformation came they were like absolutely <laughs> we have no interest in talking to you sorry anyway but that was a a, va- a no, a detour I took because I love reading about churches. <laughs> yeah, so that is what a saga is, which is a um, specific form. They're also written in kind of narrative prose, like, mm. um, and in this really, really odd, slightly odd way, whereby the author of all of them is like really detached from what they're talking about. Like, they never really, try to really detached. There's no attempt to like. <laughs> paint anyone as a character do you just talk about who everyone they're related to so it will like yeah. go from from you you'll be in the middle of learning about of you know telling the story about this one guy raiding a raiding a village over here and then it will just go there was this one man and his grandfather did this and he had seven sons and he was <laughs> one of his sons met this girl and like it will be completely unrelated for like five pages and then it will come back <laughs> And it's just a list of like events and people connected yeah. tangentially, and it's it's very very strange. Uh, and this is what Jolkin, Rolkin, Rolkin, Tolkien read and thought. <laughs> you know what? I can do that. <laughs> and people will love it. And inexplicably, he was right. He was. <laughs> He's like, you know what people like genealogies and long songs. <laughs> Genealogy is covering thousands of years. Oh my god, so so many years. And he was like, you know, people love Anglo-Saxon chronicles and <laughs> Viking sagas or Icelandic sagas. I love them, so everybody else probably does. And so I'm gonna basically put like a, an ordinary English middle class man, like a little Englander who probably voted for Brexit in the form of a hobbit. And put him in what in these stories, these sagas, and it's going to be so many genealogies, yeah. um, and it's going to be brilliant, and people are going to love it, except for Emma, who will just be looking at you going, it, it's, what's wrong with you? It's so boring. What did you say? It occurred see, to me. He does the same thing where, like, you read Lord of the Rings and there's no real sense of character. That's why no. the movies are are a little bit more fun because all of the actors have done the work that he didn't do <laughs> he to try and actually give a sense of personality to the characters they're playing. Yeah, it did occur to me that I have absolutely no idea what J.R.R. Tolkien's actual name is. Uh, Jonathan because- Ronathan Ronathan. Tolkien. <laughs> it's Jolkin, Rolkin, Tolkien, Tolkien. <laughs> I did find out, although this is from a Tumblr post, so I don't know whether I should really be saying it, but um, apparently he used to write 
his name as J-R to the power of two T. So with like a little superscript two. And then referred to himself as Jert. <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. I like Jert. Jert, I, feel Jert. Like- I can get down with it. Apparently John Ronald Rule to- Tolkien. I'm going to immediately forget that on purpose because I prefer to call him Jolkin, Rolkin, Rolkin. It's better. It's better. <laughs> so I refuse to know his name. But anyway, yeah, for he he loves a saga. He's like, yeah, no character, loads of genealogies. It's a song that goes on forever. Let's have a great time. Um, <laughs> I love alienating people by... <laughs> Look, I, that I, don't like I alienated people by talking about how much I hate lamers, and you can alienate people by talking about how much you hate Lord yeah. of the Rings, and then we're even. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah. I also don't really like the films, which alienates people even more because I. Well, I'm it, not allowed to not like the films because that's true. They, they would are part of your my, identity. They would mm. revoke my citizenship. Uh, they if, would take your passport right away. They would probably refuse to let you back in. So. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and Connor and I have occasional arguments where he is a Tolkien boy and I'm a C.S. Lewis girl. Oh, I'm uh, a C.S. Lewis girl all day long. Although I right? do, the thing about the films that I will defend is Aragorn. <laughs> Just <laughs> the of concept Aragorn. of Aragorn. Just yeah. the concept of, and like when he pushes open the double doors, you're like, yeah, no, you know, who's not going to enjoy that? Yeah, the born king. I have no time for Aragorn, king of Gondor. No, yeah, absolutely I know, not. Okay. I want, I want. <laughs> I want him rugged and sweaty. He, I don't, I don't like him so much after he's washed his hair. <laughs> Oliver likes Lord of the Rings, so he's going to edit all this out. Not listening. Not listening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So that's like how we feel like we know so much about sagas these days because of blasted Tolkien. Uh, <laughs> right. The second part of this is. Uh, uh, the Edda saga, but the Edda saga is not a thing. It is <laughs> Edda is a form of Icelandic literature, mm-hmm. and it means poetics. And it is not a form of prose, but a form of poetry of mythological poems. That is actually before we get too deep in the mythological poems. The one yes. thing from the family sagas that I did want to talk about because it is. Terrible in its own right, but relates very nicely to Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which was part of the question for last week, is that like in Eagle's saga, and I'm sure in loads of other ones, but his was the only one I read any of the actual saga of, whenever he does anything, he says a wee poem about it. So he's like, (laughs) his men are like, we shouldn't attack this place. And then he speaks a poem and then they do attack it. And what's fun in Assassin's Creed about that is that Every so often you come across someone who's like, do you want to do a rap battle? Um, and you just have to sort of do a rhyme off with them. Yeah, that does seem to be a thing. Yeah. And it, all of the like academics were very delighted by this because a lot of those like verses that are in the sagas are authentic skaldic poetry that's been excerpted. Um, so skaldic poetry is like heroic poetry written for a particular person to celebrate their achievements Mm -hmm. so it's mostly about battles and stuff and it is all like generally given a name but most of the stuff that survives is just accepted like that in sagas and things so like (laughs) they just take a verse and whack it in and so it does seem like they did be like well i'll do a poem (laughs) they liked a good poem which is nice it is nice it is. I'm softening on poetry. That's my other thing for 2023. It's softening on the concept of poetry. <laughs> That's growth. I know. I know. I'm trying to be, trying to be a better person. Uh, <laughs> but so we only have two edders. We have one which is called the Poetic Edda, <laughs> which is an anthology of mythological poems, and from this is where we know pretty much everything about Norse mythology. <laughs> it is a 13th century piece. We have one manuscript it's called the Codex Regius. And it is basically, we don't know who wrote them. We don't know who anthologized it. Somebody just wrote out all of them, all of these poems. Mm-hmm. And there's like 13 or 14 of them and put them in one manuscript and was like, there we go. <laughs> we know from copying errors, like typos, basically, that they copied it from something. Mm-hmm. But no idea what. And then there is the prose editor, 
also written in 13th century, about 50 years before the Codex Regius, by everyone's friend Snorri Sturluson, <laughs> who may well people might have heard of. And when I looked him up, I was like, okay, historian, lawyer, da 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 da, da. He wrote like a King's Saga. He wrote a bunch of other stuff. He was a lawyer and a, like a politician in Iceland. He was also an absolute fuck machine. <laughs> we love who, a fuck machine. Right? And then his life is like constantly getting into fights with people, but also just having loads of children. He kind of, he, his wife leaves him because he will not stop having sex with other people. Mm-hmm. He has five he no sorry he has seven children with four different women Mm -hmm. just like basically just meandering around iceland fucking people i mean the only other thing there is to do in iceland in the winter yeah right and and then he died by being assassinated oh that's exciting possibly by representatives of the king of norway outstanding I love this man. So I really feel like we should know more about Snorri. But the main thing that people know about him is that he wrote this thing called the Prose Edda, which is an attempt by him. The first half is an attempt to kind of systematise all of the Norse mythological poetry that he knows that (laughs) is preserved in the Poetic Edda with lots of excerpts and quotes and to kind of try and put it together into some kind of a logical story or a logical mm-hmm. narrative that connects it in some way to the Norwegian royal family. So sure. the first part is called the Gilfaginning. I'm doing very little in the way of Icelandic words because it's hard. It's Gilvaining. <laughs> but Gilfaginning, which is called the Falling of Gilfa, where the king is told a series of stories by people claiming to be gods. And they try to connect the stories, most of which we now know come from the first book of the Poetic Edda, which is called the Voluspa. Voluspa. <laughs> in which, and it's basically like all of the stories that you know from Norse mythology. Sure. Like Your Thor, your Loki, your Your Thors and your Lokis, and exactly. Yeah. And giants and world trees and, and world the, serpents. Big and, wolf and... Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. So all of that is him trying to put all of that together. And then the second part, the part that no one mentions, uh, it's just a treatise on on metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> and how to use metaphors and analogies and poems. This is my new favourite historical figure. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, where is my film about? <laughs> but yeah, so he tries to work as hard as he can to put all of the Norse mythology stuff and the Odins and things into a worldview that makes sense for him as a Christian Mm -hmm. in Iceland that is kind of relatively pleasing to the Norwegian royal family and connects it to other stories that he knows. So he has Troy in there and he has other stuff that he is kind of aware exists. So he tries to put it all in a nice order. And that was like the only thing that existed that people really knew about till the 17th century (laughs) when, because the Poetic Edda does not seem to have actually been that important when it was written, which suggests to me there were other versions of it about, but people just seem to have forgotten about it. And then (laughs) it was rediscovered in the 17th century by a guy who was like, oh, we all know about Snorri and we've, everybody's read Snorri's prose edda and we all know those stories and this must be where he got the stories from (laughs) every single version of this that i read or heard about or like looked at just says that the british the bishop brinholf svensson (laughs) came into possession of the codex regius that sounds like he's done some sort of lara crofting in a tomb and just like found it there's a lot of questions around how he came into possession of yeah. the codex but at which no one seems willing to answer <laughs> but he was very thrilled to have found it and he sent it off to the king of denmark and everyone thought that it was a 11th century thing but eventually they decided that it wasn't but so 17th century this emerges and everyone's like oh my god these are the original stories mm-hmm. excerpted by snorri and this is like what vikings believed and then that is basically how they were seen like this is the true version of what vikings believed and what people 
like our ancestors believed for a really long, 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 long time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Until pretty much quite recently, I suppose, when people have been like, actually, these were written by people, by Christians and written for a Christian audience and written, like clearly written down for a specific audience in the 13th century. Yeah. 14th century, maybe. Not for... They're not, again, oral traditions passed down. Da, 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 da. Yeah. They are works of literature written in a poetic style. And as Snorri demonstrates, written in a, like a... They're super obscure because there are all these rules about what are called kennings, like words that relate to other words <laughs> and metaphors and analogies and using terms that people might know what they mean, but quite possibly do not. (laughs) Which is how we get things like, remember Saxo Grammaticus from last time, who was like when they were talking about the making the eagle on the back, it's like a kenning for Mm -hmm. just being made into carrion. And he was like, oh yeah, no, when they would rip their lungs out. And you're like, okay, sure, in your imagination. But they have all of this kind of quite obscure stuff. that So they're really highly literary, again, like not for kind of oral consumption around the fire. They are written texts for a specific audience. And they're quite good fun, to be fair. (laughs) I did a load of poking about into Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, which I think is by far the most popular, like, Mm. version. And everybody was, like, pretty complimentary about them and says he tells, basically, the poetic Edda is pretty accurate in the way that he describes them. Yeah. As they are written down he just kind of updates them stylistically for a modern audience sure so you can read like a translation of the poetic head only you can you know get one of those but you're going to be reading it in either verse or some kind of prose translation and they are going to be like no one's got much of a personality (laughs) (laughs) but Basic, all of the kind of reviews and people talking about the Norse mythology basically says, yeah, he he updates the form, but mm-hmm. in terms of the what is actually in them, he doesn't adapt it really, yeah. and he doesn't change stuff or add stuff particularly. He so has it's more re- like a stylistic translation than yeah. a, a fictionalization of it. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're going to read them and you want to know about Odin and Thor dressing up as a lady and Loki who's not his brother which I don't think genuinely surprises people still because <laughs> <laughs> right. um the Marvel version of Loki and Thor and Odin now I think is probably the by far the yeah that most people have any connection yeah. with yeah but and which has only the barest tiniest sliver of a relationship with because <laughs> it's desperately trying to run away from the reality that they're supposed to be gods to be honest yeah it is that they're gods not superheroes <laughs> yeah it can't it can't be yeah. doing with that and they're um as violent as you would imagine they are lots of <laughs> people killing people lots of like lots of fun kind of places where it aligns surprisingly with christian stuff so like odin having to sacrifice his son in order to save the world and that kind of thing Mm. and yeah if you like reading a mythology then knock yourself out then apparently the neil gaming one is great so you can read that Uh, there are a big bunch of stories in them the one that all the stories of Ragnarok and World Tree and whatnot come from is the first one. Yeah. So really, I need to read that one. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy the fact that the second one is called Hammerval and is like Odin talking and in conversation with people and then like giving advice like cattle die, kinsmen die, the self dies. But I know one thing that doesn't die, the reputation of dead men. <laughs> And, you know, just kind of general stories about his life and works and kind of his adventures. But yeah, so that is it for <laughs> everything we know about Norse mythology, which is a 13th, two 13th century texts, yeah. which are written as part of this wider literary culture and which are written by Christians looking back at an imagined past. Yeah, so they don't really demonstrate what religion was like in Iceland before Christianity at all. No. And if anything, they seem to be some somewhat misleading because 
basically relig- mythology of stories. Mythology is stories mm. that are told about gods and, you know, like the nativity is a mythological story. And But religion is what people actually do in yeah. their relationship with the gods. So that the religion is is their f- kind of activity, their physical activity. And what what we do know about how people, how by kind of pre-Christian, Icelandic and Scandinavian people acted, it does not kind of really align with what you might expect from the stories. So Heather O'Donoghue is like, you might think from reading the stories, like Thor is just a murdering bastard, basically. <laughs> <laughs> who kind of just rampages through everything and like loads of mentions of Thor are just lists of people that he killed. <laughs> and it, so that's his thing, really. So you might think that he is a god that people might sacrifice to or who might need to be... Appeased. Yeah, placated. Mm. But when you actually see Thor in pre-Christian religion, what you see is him being... Um, He's a protector god. Right. So you see lots of people asking him for protection and you and asking for favour, basically, which is different to placating because you're not saying, please don't hurt me. You're saying, please protect me. Yeah. And like there's loads and loads of amulets of Thor's hammer and runes asking for protection and like a quarter of the earliest place names in Iceland have Thor in them mm-hmm. because they're obviously trying to say this kind of, you know, call upon him for some kind of protection in their new little place. Yeah. So which you, like, if you were to read the myths, I think you would think that Freya is someone that you ask for protection because she's like fertility and sex and whatever. Yeah, whereas or, Thor you might ask for vengeance or something. Yeah, or please don't, like, knock over my house. Yeah. <laughs> but then there is this this attitude even from the sagas, like, well, the ones that I read about uh, and the one that I read, that, like, it's this attitude of, of... And I think that this is common. I think this is why we still have nuclear weapons, to be honest, that, like, in order to be protected, you have to be aggressive. No mm. one trusts each other. So, like, you can't just say, I won't attack you if you don't attack me because you're always going to assume that the other person will attack you if you don't do it first. So, like, yeah. it's all about this very unstable security that is built on your ability to just slaughter whoever comes across your path, which I think is is kind of, you know, a fairly accurate representation of all human history, right? Like, we're so scared <laughs> of someone coming and attacking us that we attack first, and that's why everything yeah. is awful all of the time. Except that if that was the way that the world actually was, and if that was the way the world actually was when things got tough and when people were in difficult situations, then nobody would ever survive mm. and they wouldn't be able to create a nation out of it. So there has to be There has to be a point where you, where you agree to, yeah, to trust each like other. Whenever I... like preppers love that idea as well and like loads of post-apocalyptic fiction loves this idea that everything will sudden as soon as everything goes gets difficult everybody will turn on each other yeah but actually when you look at what happens in situations where there are natural disasters or where there where people have to be in survival situations they turn towards each other yeah and i always think there's a difference between like the anthropological theory that says that the first tool that humans created was a weapon and the Ursula Le Guin theory, which says that the first tool that pe- people created was probably a bag for yeah. carrying things. Yeah. <laughs> and she calls it the bag theory. Or the the Margaret Mead question where she's asked, what what is the moment where you see the beginning of humanity? And it's, it's that the first grave, the oldest grave that showed someone had a mended bone. Yeah. Because that was when we decided to care for each other. And I think I think that that's it. I think the great tragedy of humanity is that we always assume we are a danger to each other. We never assume that we're going to help each other out. And we do. So, like, if we could predict our own behavior more accurately, I think the world will be a better yeah. place. And in general, people, like, this world that the sagas describe is this world of violence and people setting fire to each other in order to feel better about themselves (laughs) (laughs) but the world that actually had to exist had to be a world of cooperation and yeah and talking to one another and you because otherwise iceland wouldn't exist (laughs) (laughs) 
it would have fallen apart immediately as they all just slaughtered one another. Yeah. And the other thing that the sagas and the mythology also talk about a lot is they're always talking about temples and places of worship and things like, you know, there being buildings where people did sacrifices. And, but there has been no archaeological evidence of those ever being found. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a weird disconnect. Like... Not even something that's converted into a church. So, And they also talk about human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. People are always talking about human sacrifice in Viking and pre-colonisation kind of pre yeah. religion. But all of that is written by Christians. Yeah. And it, like when I was reading through the stuff where they were desperately trying to reconstruct something that might resemble practice for Norse religion, they were using Tacitus. And Tacitus's Germania was written in... <laughs> the first century CE in Rome by a man who had never really left Rome (laughs) based on some things he'd heard. Yeah. And they were using that to to attempt to accurately describe ninth century behaviour during the Viking Age in Denmark. And he's describing people in not in Denmark (laughs) that he never met Um, in a text which is written pretty explicitly to make Romans feel bad about themselves. Yeah. And yeah, and so I was like, oh no, we really we didn't we know nothing. <laughs> if that's what you've got and that's an important source that you have to bring up in twenty ten, then it's not going it's not going well. Yeah. No. Yeah. So so the thing with Norse mythology is it's really cool, but it it is if not invention, like there's all kinds of arguments about where the stories came from that were written down that are fairly similar to the stories about the sagas, mm. which is, you know, are they oral traditions? Are they invented from whole cloth? Are they a bit of both? Are they like, where have they come from? Where do they go? Where do they come from, Cotton Eye Joe? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> believe you are sorry i don't believe that for i'm not even slightly sorry <laughs> uh, but like the answer is nobody knows and everybody basically has agreed that it's probably the stories originate somewhere in the viking period which is 850 to 1050 mm-hmm. from somewhere in scandinavia but that and you know they obviously are describing gods that are seen on runes and things so they're not making up gods and making up things but they are also again profoundly literary and being manipulated to fit into the worldview of the writer yeah and we don't even know how much they could possibly have been manipulated in the poetic edda because we don't know who wrote them yeah (laughs) we've got nothing we've just got can't even do any guessing but they're fun to read and you can probably read the neil gamer one have a lovely time yeah it's also, I think, a good example of like, I really think we need to be more comfortable with mystery. I think yeah. the approach to history is so often about trying to figure out what really happened. We don't know. We'll never know. We can't. We can barely know what really happened right now in our own homes, <laughs> in our own heads. Like, this it's too big. It's too much. All we can do is like, look at the scraps of information we have and uh, have a we imagine and then acknowledge that we are having a we imagine and be okay with that see it's that part that's a hard part i think which Mm -hmm. is that you can acknowledge that you're having a we imagine but people don't like to do the acknowledging part they like to say i imagined this and therefore it is true (laughs) (laughs) people really like certainty we're very very uncomfortable with admitting that we can't be certain of anything and you know where you all these neo-pagans and whatever who want to Imagine that they are doing some kind of pre-Christian idealised religion. Yeah, when actually Which, we don't know what the pre-Christian yeah. religion, religious practice was. They've imagined it and that's okay. It's okay. It's, if they're having <laughs> a nice time and they're not going to be massive racists about it, then... Yeah, if, if being the very important... <laughs> <laughs> or they're not going to insist that they're right. I did yeah. want to see somebody on TikTok insist... No, it wasn't on TikTok, it was on Goodreads. I saw somebody on Goodreads insist that they were fed up with these retellings of Greek myth because as a pagan who worshipped the Greek gods, they felt that they were... Culturally appropriative? Yeah, they were culturally appropriating their religion. Mm, and sure. I laughed for about six hours. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the best reviews I've ever read of anything. Yeah. <laughs> I love Goodreads. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, so that's that's the deal with the Vikings and the sagas and the rest of it. If you really want to know about sagas, and I think they will eventually kind of do edits and things and talk about mythology stuff, then saga thing is your friend. Mm. They are, yeah, they are experts in the field of sagas and medieval literature. And from what I can tell, they pronounce all the words right, which we don't. They're real good at Icelandic, and I am, like, <laughs> am not. Well, they are going to Iceland in June, so maybe I'll practice some words. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to go and try and look at some of these sagary stuff now. But yeah, so listen to them. They know what they're talking about and they rate them and they will tell you all the good stories without you having to do the genealogies. Yeah, which is boring. Yeah. It's all boring. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's that. Is there anything else? Oh, the other thing that I found out that really amused me was apparently, I suspect not so much anymore, but apparently in like the 20th century and the 19th century, Anglo-Saxonists used to get really like defensive about the fact that Icelandic and Norse literature had poems and all of this beautiful literature with kind of sophisticated, subtle language mm-hmm. and, like, you know, kennings and things, and Anglo-Saxons just have well-boring chronicles. <laughs> and apparently, and I found all this stuff of, like, Anglo-Saxonists, it, like, universities being like, it's not that we couldn't, we just didn't want to. Because <laughs> we are serious people. <laughs> Exactly, or like trying to be like, oh no, it's all just lost. Like all of our real good poems are lost. <laughs> <laughs> it's like these people talking about how they just prefer their f- food blend. Yeah, exactly. I just don't like salt, <laughs> but <laughs> but I just really enjoyed that idea of like like other people having a literature is somehow a it's an insult to your own yeah, literature. <laughs> exactly, or it's like Icelandic people say they're better than the English somehow. Like, just the existence of this literature means that Icelandic people are going to look down on the English and they're like, no, (laughs) we could if we wanted to. We just didn't have time for all this fannying about with good words. Uh, um, So, yeah, so I enjoyed that. So that's my last point that I felt like people needed to know about, which is funny. That's very, very good. Yeah. What are we going to talk about next time? Next time, we're finally going to do it, Janina. We're finally going to talk about the great masculine resignation. Oh, I'm really excited about this one. I, me too. So Liz Clancy is a person who officially asked us about it. So what is the great masculine resignation and when did men's clothes get so boring? <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes. It's delightful because all I've been reading during the pandemic is Georgette Heyer, who like will <laughs> devote entire pages at a time to describing what the men are wearing, and it's yeah. delightful. Yeah, as and it should be more of that, really. Yeah. Bring back velvet for men. Yeah. Bring back quizzing glasses. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about. Until then, Janina, where can people find us if they have a question? You can find us at history60.com which has links to all the other places we are. There's a wee form for you to put submit your question, but you can also get us on Facebook and Twitter, which there are links to from history60.com. Yes. It's your one-stop shop. Your one-stop shop, also where I put all of the sources that I have read. If you want to read all the things I've also read, then you can do that. And until next time, I think that's it. I think that is. All right. Bye, Janina. Bye. <laughs>